Good morning. Welcome to the Olathe campus of Christ Community Church, especially to those of you who might be in town visiting because you were fortunate enough to schedule your Thanksgiving dinner at somebody else's house. Well done. Do I need to even ask if everybody got enough to eat this weekend? Is there anybody already planning New Year's resolutions based on how much you ate the past few days? You know, my name is Chris Fernhout. I'm the uh, I have the privilege of being the student ministry pastor here at our Olathe campus, and I looked like this before Thanksgiving, so I can't really blame it on overeating. Uh, although I did do a little bit of that this week. This week here we're starting our Advent series, and I'm sure many of you are already firmly ensconced in the Christmas season, having survived yet another Black Friday, haven't you? How many people went out Black Friday in search of deals or something? All right, keep your hands up. How many were out before noon? Yeah? Everyone's got their hands like down here. It's like they're a little bit afraid. How many of you are out before 9 a.m.? Okay, we've got a couple. How many before 6 a.m.? A couple. 4 a.m.? Got a couple. <laughs> Were you out at midnight? Yeah. <laughs> All right. <laughs> We're starting our Advent series uh, this morning in Romans 8. And, and maybe, maybe a few of you here this morning are a bit confused um, still, even after Nathan explained why we're looking at Romans 8, uh, rather than something like Matthew 1 and 2 or Luke chapter 2, and that's all right to be confused by it. And maybe you're even more confused by this choice of a, of a title for this morning called The Conspiracy of Love. Um, but we've chosen Romans 8 and the t- title Conspiracy of Love because I think in many ways we approach Advent and Christmas almost in the same way that we're beginning to approach midnight openings of stores on Black Friday. You know, I'm getting old enough now that I can remember store openings like 10, maybe a little bit more years ago, where if a store was open at 6 a.m., you thought they were ridiculous, and the people who got there at 6 a.m. were like clinically insane, right? 6 a.m., really? Now it's like, that's rookie bush league if you're there at 6 a.m., isn't it? Right? The, the, the pros over here are like, yeah, you know. It's a, I, I think Advent and Christmas are the same way. You know, we start, we're starting to assume midnight openings are just normative. It's the way things are and they will be. And I think Christmas and Advent, the details around this story, we become so familiar with some of them, that we've romanticized them a little bit. We forget about the gritty details that are behind this story that just make this, this story almost impossible to believe in many ways. We're so used to the Christmas story that we forget it's a 13, 14, or 15-year-old girl who gets visited by an angel, and she's told that she will be the Messiah, the mother of the Messiah. And then she's, she finds out she's pregnant when she's a virgin and unmarried. And we look at this image, and we maybe think it's a little kind of, oh, that's startling, but really, it is totally encapsulates what's happening in that moment. Here you find an, an unwed teenage virgin who finds out she's pregnant. It's completely shocking. And then her, her fiancé gets a dream that it's going to happen and is told not to divorce her quietly like he's planning to. Talk about weird dreams, right? 
I know I have some. I'm sure you guys have some of them, and I don't want to know your dreams. But Joseph gets a dream, decides to stay with Mary. They get married anyways because of how she became pregnant, saying it wasn't, it wasn't Joseph, it was the Spirit. Who's going to believe that? Their marriage and their life is tainted for years and years afterwards. She's pregnant, and in the third trimester, they travel to Bethlehem for a census on a donkey. Who's her doctor anyways that allows travel so late in the third trimester anyways, right? That's like losing your license status. On a donkey, they travel to Bethlehem, not like a few miles. It's like a long distance. They get to Bethlehem. They can't find room anywhere because clearly Tom Bodet did not leave the light on at Motel 6 for them. The only place they can find is some dirty barn. Oh, Jesus born in a manger. Oh, yeah. Gross. And it's Joseph delivering the baby. Guys, are we not sweating bullets yet here? This sounds terrifying to me. And then, as they're, flying, as they're sitting there going, oh, phew, we survived it. A bunch of dirty bearded guys smelling like sheep poop show up to celebrate. Yay, birthday. They're celebrating the birth of Jesus. It, it, it sounds ridiculous in, in many ways. But the Christmas story is anything but commonplace. It's the most ridiculous plan for redemption of an undeserving people that anyone could have ever dreamt up. And it's so unbelievable on so many levels that it actually starts to feel like it could be a conspiracy theory. And I know Nathan and Patrick have fun with me sometimes saying that I must be a conspiracy theorist because of some of the things I wonder about and talk about. But, you know, I want to ask you this morning, which is more believable? The Christmas story as I've just described it to you, which is accurate, or that the 1969 Apollo moon landing might have been faked in a movie studio in Hollywood. Which is more believable, the true Christmas story, the way it happened, or that in 1947, something crashed on a ranch in Roswell, New Mexico, and the government initially said it was a saucer and then said, oh no, it was a weather balloon, right? Aliens? Which is, more, uh, light, easy, which is easier to believe? The Christmas story as we know it, or that Elvis and Tupac are actually still alive and kicking it somewhere in the Caribbean? Or even more recently, which is easier to believe? The Christmas story, or that Twinkies really isn't going out of business. They just want you to buy more of their poison. Really? People were talking about this in the news. Was it real? The Christmas story, as we profess it and understand it, actually fits quite well alongside of some of these conspiracy theories. Except that it's true, right? We believe that it's true. When we take the time to consider the details and the events behind the Christmas story and how they happen, a more audacious, ridiculous, mind-boggling script could not have been written. But this hard-to-believe story should not cause us to doubt. It should give us great joy. The most audacious Christmas story we know that we confess as truth and place our hope in is still about much more than the 
perfect eight-pound, five-ounce baby Jesus lying in a manger with a gold-fleece diaper, not crying a bit like Ricky Bobby describes it, right? It's much more than that. It's about, it's about a deeper, richer mission begun thousands of years ago at the same moment that God is telling Adam and Eve in their, in their sin what life is going to be like. In that same moment, he's already formulating a rescue plan for his people. And that's why we've chosen Romans 8. Because Romans 8 reminds us that the Christmas story is much bigger than us. But it's meant just for us. So let's turn to Romans chapter 8, verses 1 to 11. Romans 8, Paul writes to the people of Rome, starting in verse 1. There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law, indeed it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. Before we go any further, I forgot to mention that there are a lot of kids and uh, students in here this morning, and we do every week, we provide uh, kind of an activity sheet to help kids. Awesome, you got yours. But I know we did run out after the first service, so if you did not get one, there is an activity sheet in the back, and we kind of designed them to help kids uh, stay connected with the service and learn something from it as well, because we don't just want kids in the service, they're a part of the service. We need kids here in our worship services because they are part of how God designed the church to be. So that, and if you fill it out, you get candy hookups afterwards. So need I say more? So in Romans 8, as we've just read it though, Paul is his typical complicated, dense, and hard to understand self sometimes. But Paul's actually got a very simple point to this passage. Right in the very first verse, we can read the main point of this whole passage. There is no condemnation. Christmas means there is no condemnation. And this morning we're going to see how there is no condemnation by looking at three things. What God did, what Jesus accomplishes, and how the Spirit enables us to live. All right? Before we really dive in this morning, uh, let's just take a quick look at the structure uh, in what Paul is writing this morning. He actually is working in a linear progressive structure that I just want to break down so that we, we don't get bogged down in. Paul starts out in verse 1, he says, There is no condemnation. 
And then he says, second, there's no condemnation because the Spirit has set you free from sin and the law. We are set free from, the, from, the, from sin and law because God acted in and through His Son, Jesus, to condemn sin and give life. Fourth, as a result, there are two ways of life to live. The flesh life and the spirit life. And you, Paul's saying to his readers and to us, and you are living the spirit life. Yay. And these two lives, he says, lead to two different things. The flesh leads to death, the spirit leads to life. And because the spirit leads to life, and because of everything he said, there is no condemnation for those who are in it. What God did. Christmas means there is no condemnation because of what God did. Adam and Eve had it good, didn't they? God said it was good. We read that in Genesis chapter 1. After everything, he said, and it was good. So presumably, the weather was always perfect. The work wasn't difficult, but it was rewarding. Adam and Eve never had to brave Black Friday because they, they didn't need anything and they had everything they needed. And they could eat whatever they want and it, did, and it never showed. It sounds like a great life. But yet they willingly decided to try it on their own, their own way. They chose what they thought was best for them. They put their will before God's and entered into the selfish life. And it says immediately that when they heard God walking in the garden, in Genesis 3, verses 8 and 9, when they heard God walking in the garden, their first response was they hid because they were ashamed and afraid. I'm sure this could not have been what they imagined when they made that first selfish choice. Sin enters the, enters the world, perfection is gone, and Adam and Eve, Adam and Eve are left with shame and fear. Adam and Eve became people who, know, who knew nothing else but to put themselves first. Just as we do every day. Just as I do every day. Each and every day, given the opportunity to seek what is best for ourselves, we will choose it. Even if it means you hurt the ones around you, and even if it means you put up barriers between you and God. Left to our own devices and our own choices and beliefs about what we think is best for us, we will always choose for ourselves. And we will choose a way that is hostile to God and hostile to His desires for our lives. Left to our own devices, we will choose the way of the flesh. But God does a really curious thing. In in Genesis 3, as He's telling an Adam and Eve what their life will look like from that moment on, he, he can't wait to give a glimpse of the, of the rescue plan he's already coming up with. As he's telling them what their life will look like going forward, he slips in there that Satan, you and sin, I'm going to crush your head. I'm going to crush your head while you're trying to bite at the heels of mankind. God has a plan, and, he, and it unfolds in two steps. So what did God do? What was his plan? First, he gave us the law. And I know in Romans 3, it says that the law was was not good enough. And you're right, the law isn't good enough. It wasn't intended to to make us righteous and remove sin from our lives. One of the purposes of the law is to show us our fatal flaw. God gave us the law so that we would know we have a problem and that we can't solve it 
on our own. The law exposes sin in us. It exposes the selfishness. It exposes the fear. It exposes the shame. And it's a reminder that we can never measure up on our own. God did that for us. God gave us the law, not so that we would always feel ashamed, dirty, and never good enough. He gave us the law so that we'd realize we need his help, and we can't do it on our own. Christmas means there is no condemnation. N.T. Wright wrote, no condemnation. This assurance can, of course, only carry its full force for someone who has pondered carefully the seriousness of sin and the reality of God's judgment. So we must ask ourselves, do I really know I'm sinful? Do I really know how selfish I am? Do I really understand that my sin separates me from God? Our sin causes a separation between us and God that nothing can fill, that nothing can bridge, nothing can remove. God needed to remove that separation, and the only way that made sense for Him to do it was for Him to bridge the gap and come to us. And so part two of what God did was he sent his son as the solution. His son Jesus came down to earth, born as an infant, in the flesh like you and me, but born of a virgin by the Holy Spirit so that he would remain sinless. And he entered the world in that way into our lives to bridge the gap that our sin causes between us and the Father. And it was God who did that. Christmas means there is no condemnation. Throughout this passage, Paul is drawing a pretty heavy line in the sand, though, isn't he? He's saying you are either in the life of the flesh or you're in the life of the Spirit. There is no in-between. You're on one side of the line or the other. And apart from God, apart from Christ, you are living the life of the flesh. To be living in the life of the Spirit means that we set our things on, on things of the Spirit. But what does that even mean? To live the life of the Spirit and set our minds on the things of the Spirit means that we have no mind of our own. Christ is our mind. We have no desires of our own, but the will of Christ is the one thing that we pursue and desire. It's like we've had a spiritual lobotomy. But how is this even possible? How is this even possible given that we have sinful flesh? Here's where we can begin to understand the beauty of God's audacious and ludicrous conspiracy of love for us. God sends us his son to bridge the gap that we can't bridge ourselves. But he sends him wrapped in flesh, the same kind of flesh that is the symbol, that's symbolic of our sin. He's just like us. Except that in human form, he lives perfectly the life of the Spirit. And even though he comes as a baby, grows up as an adolescent, even a young man in Israel, he goes through all uh, the temptations and all the challenges that life brings us, that we face every day, and yet he does not falter. He faced the same temptations that I face every day. He faced the same temptations that you face every day. He He faced 
the temptation like we do every day to solve the problem of our own sin, to try and be better. That temptation to turn rocks into bread. He faced, just like we do, the temptation to do something spectacular and draw attention to ourselves so that we'll feel worthy. That's the temptation of throwing ourselves down from the temple to be caught by the angels. And he, just as we do every day, he faced the temptation to be powerful, to be in control of our own existence, to be like Jerry Seinfeld says, to be the master of my domain. And that's the temptation to bow down something other than ourselves so that God won't be in control, so that we will. Jesus in the flesh, but with the mind of the Spirit, dealt with these three temptations just as you and I do every single day, and he remained sinless and stainless and blameless. And Romans 8 verse 8 says that those who are in the flesh cannot please God, and yet after Jesus is baptized in Mark chapter 1 verse 11, God says, you are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. Despite Jesus' innocence, despite being sinless, despite living the life of the Spirit, Jesus pays the price for us so that we can live the life of the Spirit. Jesus atones for our sin, for my sin. But what does atonement mean? Jesus was sent not just as Messiah, but as God himself to us to pay the price for sin, the life of the flesh that was intended for me, that was intended for us. But Paul makes a very careful distinction in this passage in Romans 8 that we read this morning. Paul doesn't say that God condemned Jesus. He says he condemned sin in the flesh. In condemning sin through the sending of His Son, Jesus, to us, through Jesus living the life of the Spirit in a sinful world, and then Him dying on the cross in our place, sin is put to death. So that it no longer has power over us. It no longer has power over me or you. Jesus paid the price for our sin. And so now, rather than the law showing us how we're not living... Jesus, Jesus shows how we can live, how we can live in Him. Christmas means there is no condemnation. Paul makes it clear that we are either living for the flesh or for the spirit. He also makes it clear that sin has been defeated. But this, this doesn't mean that sin is eliminated, does it? I don't want to ask any of you to raise your hand if, if you sinned already this morning on the way the, to church. I'm sure many of us have. So sin is still a present and real reality in our life. And, and if it is, how can I then live the life of the Spirit with the mind of Christ when my desire is to live for myself in the flesh? How can we live one way when we want to live another way? And I've got a clip from the movie Tangled that I want to show to kind of illustrate this feeling. Catchy tune, huh? How many adults were singing along when you know this movie's really for your kids? Yeah? Okay, now, I, I showed this clip not because we have a dream, but because I, I think this clip illustrates the dichotomy that we all feel, the life between the spirit and the life of the flesh. We're all malicious, mean, and scary, and our thoughts and our dreams could probably curdle dairy if other people knew what they were. But yet, 
We want to be something else, don't we? We don't want to be just that big ogre with a hook. We want to be concert pianists whose lives make music for the glory of God. But whereas this video clip uh, and the character in the clip relies on the power of his dream to become a concert pianist, we, don't, we can't rely just on the power of a dream. We will fail every time if that's the case. Our desire to live by the Spirit cannot be left to our own strength to defeat the desires of the flesh. It's not by our power, but by the power of the Spirit that we have the ability to have the life of the Spirit. And Paul is so emphatic about the power of the Spirit that he mentions it ten times in verses 5 to 11. And then he reiterates that we have the Spirit in us three times in verses 9 to 11. In verse 9, he says, the Spirit of God dwells in you. In verse 10, he says, and if Christ is in you, the implication that he is in us. And in verse 11, he finishes by saying, the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. If we have faith that Jesus took sin on himself, defeated sin on the cross so that we can become righteous, then we have the power of the Holy Spirit in us. The same Spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead. That is why there is no condemnation for us. Because the Spirit enables us to live. Because the Spirit of God dwells in us. Christmas means there is no condemnation. And because the Spirit of God dwells in us, we belong to Him. And what does it look like for those who, belong, who are in the Spirit? Living the life of the Spirit means, first, that the Spirit enables us to set our minds on things of the Spirit. In verse 5 of chapter 8, Paul writes that those who are in their flesh set their minds on the flesh, and those who are in the Spirit set their minds on things of the Spirit. If we were in the Spirit, we will be able to focus our minds there. In Colossians 3 verse 2, Paul also says, set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on the earth. The Spirit then will empower us to bring our thoughts and our wills into a Godward focus. We will focus on Christ and His will instead of ourselves on our own will. But it won't, we won't be perfect all the time. None of us can pray and read the Bible all day long, can we? But generally speaking, we need to ask ourselves... Is our focus, is my focus on the things of this world or on things of God? The Spirit enables us to set our our mind on things of the Spirit. Living the life of the Spirit means that the Spirit enables us to, to have life and peace instead of death and restlessness. And we read this in verses 6 and in verse 11, that we will be given life. Paul also famously writes in Romans 6 verse 23 that the wages of sin, the wages of the flesh are death. But the free gift of God, the gift of life of the Spirit is eternal life. But it's not just life that he gives us. Paul says the Spirit also gives us peace. It doesn't say that the life of the Spirit will always be easy and free from heartache and will never run into trouble. It doesn't say that. 
but it does say that the life of the Spirit brings a sense of security instead of a sense of restlessness and fear. Despite what is happening, we can have, have assurance that Christ has already done what we cannot do, and we can have hope that He will bring restoration to all things. Living in the Spirit means that the Spirit will enable us to delight in God instead of show hostility to Him, which is what Paul says in the first half of verse 7, that people who are in the flesh show hostility towards God. We will have a joy towards the Father. Some of us may know someone who is really resentful and angry towards God, but I'm guessing most of us probably know someone who instead is apathetic towards God. Someone who instead of having joy in God and His provision and His will for our life, instead they heave a collective, meh, whatever, towards God. Which is more dangerous? Spiritual lethargy or spiritual hostility? I'm guessing most of us would agree that spiritual, spiritual lethargy is much more dangerous because it can lull us into a false sense of security about who we are in God. This begs the question that we have to collectively and individually answer. Do I delight in God? Or am I hostile to Him? Or worse, am I apathetic? Living in the Spirit means that we will delight in the Father. Living in the Spirit also means that the Spirit will enable us to willfully submit to God's law. Paul talks about this in the second half of verse 7. Living a life of the flesh means we live for us. We are looking out for number one every day. The spirit life means we are empowered to joyfully embrace God's law for our life and trust that it's, not for our, that it's for our benefit, that it's not for our restriction. And the Holy Spirit will enable holy living as a result. Kids and teenagers if, here this morning, much of your life right now centers on trying to figure out who God has created you to be. And part of that process is learning how to make decisions for yourself while at the same time recognizing that your parents are making decisions that are good for you. And coming to that realization and submitting to your parents' decisions while learning who you are in God and learning to make your own decisions is just like the life of the Spirit. When you learn to submit to your parents, it's like learning to submit to the way of the Spirit. In the same way, the Spirit enables us to submit to God's law even though we'd like to choose our own way. This doesn't mean we'll never sin again. But it means that we will see the goodness of God's law for us and the benefit that it has for us. Living in the Spirit means that the Spirit will empower us to want to seek the pleasure of the Lord. And Paul addresses this in, in verse 8 of chapter 8. He says, The life of the flesh cannot please the Father. And it cannot please the Father because it's too concerned with pleasing, pleasing others and seeking their approval. But living in the Spirit means that we will want to please the audience of one. That we will live to hear, that, that we will live to hear the words that Jesus heard his Father say when he was getting baptized. This is my son. This is my daughter. 
In them I am well pleased. Those words are significant. Those are the words of a conspiracy of love for us. God's plan was not just to remove sin from our record. If that were the case, I'd love to think that there would be a much easier solution for God and for Jesus. But our Father wanted more. He wanted more for us. More for me. More for you. God's plan was one of redemption and restoration and renewal. It's a conspiracy of love. But this conspiracy of love didn't just end with Jesus' death, the removal of our sin, and our redemption and restoration. God didn't just come to dwell with his people by taking on flesh and and becoming human. After his resurrection, he guaranteed this conspiracy of love would continue until his son's return. And he did this, he guaranteed that by dwelling in us, in his people, by giving us the power of the Holy Spirit so this conspiracy would continue. This Christmas, we celebrate many things. We celebrate that God came and dwelt among us. But we also celebrate Emmanuel, God with us, and the Holy Spirit in us. We celebrate this conspiracy of love. And we celebrate that Christmas means there is no condemnation. Let's pray. Dear Father in heaven, we thank you for who you are who you have been, and who you will always be. We thank you that in the very moment of finding out that, we, uh, that Adam and Eve that had sinned and in describing what their life going forward would be like, you were also already giving a glimpse of what your uh, grand, audacious rescue plan would be. And Lord, too, we thank you that uh, in a desire to bless us and see us restored, uh, you decided it wasn't enough just to erase sin from our record but you long to to give us the life that you had originally planned and designed for us and that you are now giving to us again in part that we will receive in full when Jesus returns and that is the life of the Spirit. Help us to turn our minds and our wills and our life to you so that we will seek to bring you pleasure, so that we will delight in you, so that we can usher in your inbreaking kingdom here today. And so that others around us may know the life of the Spirit as well. In your name we pray. Amen.